And it turns out that people have an innate capacity to heal that is programmed into every single cell in their body. If you weren't healing all the time, you would be dead on day three of life. The rate of change in the body is so dramatic. The entire gut lining has to completely turn over, replace itself completely, which is billions of cells every three days since the day you were born. And so you are a generative factory of human body and you are making a new human body every few days. Every three months, you have a new liver. Every seven years, you have a new brain. Like every single cell in your body is new all of the time. So why is it that we start to age? Why is it that we start to accumulate inflammation? Why is it that we start to accumulate disease that doesn't go away every day because we have a new body? And the answer is because the environment is what predicts the biology. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dotches marmette We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hello, and welcome back to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so excited to be here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning into our show. We know you're going to be blown away by today's conversation with our amazing guest, but before we dive into the episode, we want to mention just a couple of things. First, we want to give a shout out to a recent review that we received on Apple Podcast. Thank you, Dub 70 who recently wrote us this review. Marnie and Stephanie always seem to bring out something interesting in their interviews. I come away with great information, a new perspective, and the feeling that they are genuinely interested in sharing what it means to live well. Well, thank you so much, B-Dubs, for the wonderful review. We're glad that you're enjoying our podcast and walking away from each episode with new tools, strategies, and ways of thinking to help you on your journey to live well. And we would love others to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as it really does help us reach more people so that others can benefit from our inspiring conversations and the resources that we share each week. And of course, if you're enjoying today's conversation, please share it with a family, friend, or anyone you think may benefit from the information. And of course, tag us on social media, which is at the art of living underscore well. And then finally, just quick announcement to save the date for our next seven-day functional medicine liver detox, which will kick off on Monday, April 10th. And while spring may feel months away right now for most of the country, with all the snow we're having, the upcoming change in season means that it's time for our next community detox program. In fact, according to the Chinese, spring is the ideal time to cleanse and nourish the liver. You can find out more information about this fabulous and very popular program and also sign up by clicking the link in our show notes and feel free to reach out to us with any questions that you have. Marnie and I are truly beyond excited and honored to share today's guest, Dr. Zach Bush. We know many of you may have heard Zach on other podcasts and for other listeners, this may be the first time that you've heard from him. Regardless, this conversation is going to provoke a new way of thinking that you may or may not have been exposed to before today. Zach is one of the few individuals 
if not the only, who I've listened to on dozens of podcasts where I am consistently captivated by his mind-blowing insights and his ability to make me laugh and cry while importantly giving me hope for humanity in the same conversation. So a little bit about Zach. Dr. Zach Bush is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. He is the founder of Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His work in for-profit and nonprofit arenas is creating avenues for collaborative action for all stakeholders in our global community for a regenerative future of health for the planet and our children. So in today's episode, Zach shares the role that our entire environment, not just the food we eat every day, has the power to create disease in our body and also provide our bodies with the power to radically heal. He talks about the chemicals in our food supply, including glyphosate, and how our exposure to them has resulted in the chronic explosion of disease that we're currently seeing in our country and around the globe. Zach shares how your body has this amazing ability to intrinsically heal itself when given the right surroundings and environment. And he shares what it means when we get sick, including the important role of a fever, something that we've been taught in the Western world to just use medicine to make it go away so that we can get back to our busy and important lives. But really, when we tune in and listen to our body and what it's telling us, we can heal on our own. You will also learn about the work he's doing through his nonprofit, Farmer's Footprint, which aims to expose the human and environmental impacts of chemical farming and offers a path forward through regenerative agricultural practices. Zach will share his new eight-week course, The Journey of Intrinsic Health, as well as ION, which is his line of supplements that support the body's natural capacity to heal and how these products can radically help you heal and improve the quality of your life. This episode is filled with so much of Zach's insight from decades of experience, as well as scientific information that isn't broadly shared with the general public. And this could seem almost too much to tackle, but what Zach does so beautifully is to provide you with hope. Hope that if we get reconnected to our food, our health and vitality and mental capacity for growth will radically change. Zach shares several small and doable steps that you can start doing immediately to heal yourself. After we stopped recording this episode, we continued chatting with Zach and he shared even more inspiration that we already said we want him to come back on for a part two. So after you listen to today's conversation, we'd love for you to share with us on social media or via email What is your biggest takeaway from the conversation? And what's the one small thing that you're going to commit to doing in the next 24 to 48 hours to allow yourself the space each day to unleash your creativity and connect with others in order to find your art of living well? And without further ado, let's jump right into today's mind-blowing conversation with Dr. Zach Bush. Hi, Dr. Zach. Marnie and I are beyond excited and honored to have you on our show today. We are both huge fans and have been for quite some time. And I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Steve, for making this connection and having you on today. You know, it's interesting because it was actually my husband who first introduced me to you and he met you at a work conference several years ago. 
And I've just been enamored by the work that you're doing. And it's honestly a dream that you're here today on our show to share with our listeners what I know will be a very profound and stimulating conversation. So thank you for the generosity of your time today. Thank you, Stephanie and Marnie. Glad to be with you both. Yeah. So, yeah. Before we dive in, um, one question we want to ask you is just what is your non-negotiable to start each day? A little bit of quiet, I think, is my new non-negotiable. I don't think I used to start life like that, but uh, I, I really value and enjoy those few moments uh, that begin on a pillow, I think, as you start to slip back into consciousness uh, from that dreamscape and finding a lot of power in trying to carry forward that magic, uh, that, that, that sense of in-between that happens as we fall asleep or as we wake up. Uh, I think it's the most real state that we're in in some ways and starting to really enjoy that moment and savor that and create environments around me in which that happens no matter where I am in the world. I'm traveling all the time and all that. And so how do you create an environment where you're always encouraging at the subconscious level for your conscious mind to, to surrender itself into this ethereal state? I think this is where we see that magical capacity for uh, a sense of awareness of our childlike aspects uh, before the sense of email and all the other responsibilities come crashing down on us in the mornings and you know, phone calls start firing off and text messages and everything else. So keeping your phone out of the bedroom, keeping your space really sacred in those few minutes between dream state and what we would call our, our reality allows for a creativity to occur there. So that's that's my non-negotiable, a quiet creative space between sleep and wake. And do you write anything down that comes to you during that time? Uh, just because of my, I don't know, my personality, maybe my star chart, who knows why, but I have never been one to journal. Um, I, I think I've been given 320 journals over the last 15 years. People <laughs> listen to me and they're like, wow, that guy must like write lots of things down or something. I don't know. I must give the impression because I get gifted journals all the time. So I have piles and piles of empty journals that are really pretty to look at and they look really good on my bookcases. But for whatever reason, I, I'm rarely inspired to write something down. I, I try to write down song lyrics when those come, but otherwise... I, I uh, don't write much down. Okay. Well, that was a great start. And I think we should dive right in because we're really excited to learn about your journey and what how it has culminated in all this amazing work that you're doing today. And I know a lot of your work focuses on the microbiome and your views on conventional farming practices and their relationship to the state of disease in our country and the state of our current healthcare system. Yeah, well, that's a pretty good sum of my last 15 years or so. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the 15 years before that were really focused on allopathic Western medicine and uh, went through a bit of a normal journey. I mean, I didn't get into it maybe for normal reasons. I was going into engineering and then took a year off and decided to uh, travel to the Philippines and work with an international group of midwives birthing babies there. And that experience was so radically life-changing that I, I really came back with a lot of reverse culture shock <laughs> coming back to the U.S. after living in the near the squatter villages of Quezon City outside of Manila and coming back into the U.S. environment, uh, born and raised in Boulder. So relatively humble background um, there. I was you know, born to two great hippie parents who uh, raised us in touch with the mountains there and, and spent a lot of time outdoors. So it wasn't like I was coming from a super affluent background, but when you come out of True, true poverty and you come back in the United States, the reverse culture shock is pretty extreme. And 
I think when you're 19, 20 years old, you have, you know, you're ready for uh, an earth shattering change in paradigm every anyway. So I was probably age and hormonally prone to a massive <laughs> transformative uh, impact. And uh, it came through and I decided to shift at that point into medicine. What was not a, a, a fan of school at all. Uh, in high school, I spent most of my time underneath vehicles, building cars and stuff like that. And so I didn't immediately decide I could be a doctor. I actually thought that would be ridiculous. So I was going into nursing for a while. And then this nurse practitioner thing came to be a reality in the early 1990s when I was going through my programs. And uh, then the slippery slope kind of took me to that decision to go ahead and commit to the MD pathway. And I remember telling my parents distinctly that I was standing in their, their living room, had come over from my college apartment and, and I told them I was going to be a, a medical doctor and they both burst out laughing unintentionally. They, it was like one of those moments as a pair where you're like, I mean, we didn't mean that. Like, that's nice. We're, we're really happy you are dreaming big. But the idea that I was going to go be a medical doctor was downright comical to them. And and for good reasons, I had never shown any interest in or, or proclivity to an academic career. So so it was it was not an obvious path for me, I think, but uh, it's where where life took me. And by the way in which the fates work, when I got in medical school, suddenly the world really made sense. And I became quite an exceptional student at that point uh, because things started making sense, not because I got smarter, but that somebody gave me a framework to start to learn in that I had never been handed. And that framework was ultimately the human body. So that first six months of medical school, you're dissecting a single human body for six months every day. You're taking apart this body from skin all the way down to every last blood vessel, lymphatic tissue, and, you know, myofascia and every muscle dissected. You, I learned the body so thoroughly. And I think my background in the three-dimensional world of engineering and mechanics and everything else was preparing me unintentionally perhaps for this journey into the human body as the ultimate machine. And uh, from that moment on, the world made sense because I could continue to build biochemistry, cell biology, all these things that I had struggled with in undergrad. Suddenly, I had a framework to put them into and the world started to make a lot of sense and school got easy for my first time in my life. And that was a welcome change and, and welcome enough that I just kept on going with schooling. So, I, I finished uh, med medical school, got my MD and then went to the University of Virginia and had a really blessed decade there. I specialized in internal medicine for three years there. And then I did a really fun year called a chief resident year, which is a teaching year. And I think that's actually, you know, in hindsight, probably one of the big pivot points of, of my career, because when you start to teach something rather than, you know, try to learn and regurgitate something, it gives you a completely different perspective on the information. And I think there was a, a sense of duty of a responsibility of knowing that information differently when I was teaching it to medical students and residents and the like. And I started to see all kinds of faults in the in the premise of Western medicine and this pharmaceutical model. And so I started diving deeper and deeper into, do we have the wrong model? And by the time I'd finished internal medicine chief residency year, I was pretty sure that I, I was seeing a completely different world. And that took me into the world of endocrinology and metabolism, where I was learning how does the body coordinate life through hormonal communication, et cetera. And then how does life occur at the energy level? So this is metabolomics, the endocrinology and metabolism. The word metabolism means the liberation of energy from the food we eat, for example. And so when you're studying at the cellular level how life occurs, it gets pretty exciting that you can start to actually build like like it did through gross anatomy, start to build a whole matrix of understanding of how does the world work in relationship to a cell and how does that cell work within the relationship of that world. And that took me into this you know huge world of looking at 
disease differently as a, a deficiency in health rather than something that was attacking health. And when you start to see the world as just as a simple deficiency of health that then can manifest in a million different diseases, there's only one solution. It's create more health. And so starting around 2008, I was innovating chemotherapy through using nutrients instead of poisons. And so instead of trying to kill the cells, I was trying to provide them more, more stimulation, more nutrient stimulation, which would then stress them if they were cancer cells to the point where they would eliminate themselves. So you could, you could create a situation where instead of poisoning cells, you give them so much nutrient demand that if they were a cancer cell, they would die. And so that was a new, new approach or a new paradigm to thinking about cancer treatment that would be kind of non-toxic. So I managed to get from kind of basic science all the way through clinical trial with a vitamin A compound. And that was taking me down this slippery slope into nutrition. And once I really started to, to peel back the layers, the first few layers, just very rudimentary layers of nutrition, realized, oh my gosh, we have, as an endocrinologist teaching, you know, diabetes and weight loss and all the things that we focus on, I had completely the wrong paradigm. I had asked all the wrong questions, or maybe I haven't even asked questions. I had just assumed that people were right about the food pyramid and about low carbohydrate diets and all this stuff. And, uh, and so it was a daunting couple of years of realizing nothing I, I had in my matrix was real. It was all based on assumptions of other people and that had been fed to me as if it was some sort of, you know, rote truth. And that started this journey into actually having to leave academia because I was starting to ask questions that were never going to get funded in, in an academic environment. Unfortunately, we think of, you know, the Harvards of the world as being the, the front edge of, of thought. And when you're in that bureaucratic you know, system of science, you find out you can't get funding for new ideas. You get funding for ideas that have been maturing for 10 or 20 years, and you've proven out a bunch of the concepts, and then you can mature it a little bit. But you can't have a revolutionary idea that disrupts billions of dollars of other medical research and expect that to get funded. Because to get it funded, you have to have peers say, yes, that's, a re that's the right premise. And so this peer-reviewed funding and peer-reviewed publication of science keeps us in a very glacially slow movement of paradigm shifting science. So paradigms can't shift because of the way that peer review science and funding keeps us relegated to the old way of thinking. And so this led to a realization that if I, if I was going to do anything, I was going to have to do it out and that was going to change paradigms. It was going to have to be outside of that, that purview of the academic environment and it would have to move into the private sector. And so it was a big jump and terrifying the day I left the university, but in leaving in 2010 and, you know, starting a nutrition center in rural Virginia, I wanted to set it up in a place where there was a, an absolute food desert. I figured I could, I didn't know much nutrition. I didn't have much confidence about my lack of knowledge there, but I did know I, it was probably better to eat kale than eat the hot dogs that were spinning at the, at the uh, local gas station where people were shopping. So it, it was a place where I thought I could be confident to do no harm. And over the next couple of years, amazingly, I found that I was doing harm with nutrition. And that, that was a couple of year process of understanding how that was possible. And that took me then into this environmental world. Wow. Um, I loved, you know, I've heard you on obviously lots of podcasts, but loved hearing some of the, the new information about your upbringing and childhood and all that, which I find very fascinating. And just, you know, the, something you said, like these revolutionary ideas don't get funded and just, you know, congratulations to you for at some point, just, you know, stepping outside the status quo and doing things differently and speaking your mind. And that takes you kind of where, what you've been doing the last, you know, years and decades here. So 
what you, you kind of started touching on nutrition. What's next? So what you, you mentioned, like getting back to nutrition and the clinic you set up in rural Virginia, can you kind of take us to that next phase of what you learned in the process about nutrition and obviously the impact that it has on our health and then our microbiome? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were basically dealing with, you know, the epicenter of chronic disease. So the, the South became the epicenter of disease starting between 1996 and 2006. So we saw a huge reversal of the public health map in the United States in a single decade. And, and the genetics of the United States is very interesting in that we really are a melting pot. This isn't like going to, you know, a province in China where you have 99.9% identical genetics because the population has been very static for 40,000 years. We literally have a place where the genetics of the world have come together to create this very diverse pool of, of you know, expression of human gen genome, which should re lead to a situation where it's very hard to change public health regionally or at some sort of macro level because you have so much resilience baked into the biodiversity of genomics within these spaces. So when you see an event suddenly occur where you see a complete reversal of the public health map where it used to be northeast and northwest were where like our cancer epidemics were and all that when you suddenly in a 10-year period swap that cancer goes up everywhere but explodes in a single area kind of from east texas all the way to you know georgia that whole area of the country and going as far north as you know ohio indiana and across you know into tennessee parts of West Virginia, Virginia. So that whole kind of one third of the country suddenly exploded with chronic diseases, including obesity starting in the 1980s, autoimmune diseases and cancer starting in the 1990s. By 2000s, we're seeing an explosion of, you know, immune dysfunction, dietary in intolerances, gluten sensitivity to everybody, celiac disease, autoimmune disease of the thyroid, autoimmune disease to the adrenal glands, autoimmune disease to the skin. You know, it just goes on and on of what was exploding by the mid 2000s, by the 2015, it's pretty obvious we have an explosion of neurologic conditions, Alzheimer's in women's, Parkinson's in men, uh, attention deficit and autism in children. So this huge, you know, kind of swooping disease process hits these southern states, affecting all the states, affecting every single county in the country. But this was the new epicenter of disease. And so it was in that context that, you know, I, I put my clinic into, you know, Southern Virginia and, and into this kind of rural environment of a food desert thinking it was the food that had, had changed and it was poverty that was causing disease. That's what I had been taught in medical school. But it turns out when you look at the economics of the South, you look at Louisiana, Mississippi, they had always been, you know, our most impoverished, most rural environments, all that. And yet they didn't have a problem evident until 1996 to 2006. And it wasn't like poverty suddenly got worse in that 10 year period. Something happened in that system that, that did that. And I hadn't seen these patterns yet at this point. I just knew there was a lot of disease and I thought it was, oh, it's just food, fix the food. So I went in and I started feeding my patients an enormous amount of cruciferous vegetables, kale, Brussels sprouts, you know, sweet potatoes as well, and things like that. So I was pounding them with nutrients that had been proven for 40 years through Cornell and, you know, Esselstein out at Cleveland Clinic. We had good, you know, allopathic Western medicine, peer-reviewed science data that this food could reverse diabetes, heart disease, cancer, et cetera. So I've gotten very excited in my last couple of years at UVA that we could use food as medicine. And this, of course, is a 4,000 year old concept from Hippocrates and Chinese medicine, Chinese medicine, 4,000 years, Hippocrates, 2000 years ago. And so we've got thousands of years of knowledge of this, but somehow it took me 17 years in academia to crank through and come to the same conclusion. 
But then as soon as I tried to apply that information, it wasn't working. And that, that was a really frustrating two years that, that 2010 to 2012, we were pounding our patients with nutrients and about a third of them would suddenly get better. Diabetes would get better they'd drop weight. Inflammation would go down. Cancer levels would stabilize. Like it was really exciting times, but a third of those were actually getting worse. And the third kind of did nothing. So a third of them getting worse on health food made absolutely no sense to the science that was out there at the time. And that sent me down a really deep rabbit hole and ended up in 2012. By that time, a couple of colleagues had been attracted to my crazy little clinic out in, in rural Virginia. And we started a biotech company and we were starting to study the, the effects of nutrients within soil, specifically the nutrients made by bacteria and fungi and, and healthy soil systems and their impact on human health. And in that journey, we kind of really, you know, rediscovered, you know, or at least for myself through Dr. John Gilday, a PhD in our laboratory, the, the whole science of glyphosate, which is the most abundant antibiotic and chemical in our entire globe. Now it's the active ingredient in all the weed killers on the planet, including something like Roundup. And so Roundup popularized this chemical glyphosate in the 1970s. By the 1980s, it was getting into our municipal water systems. And this is when we saw the explosion of obesity. And then by the 1990s, we have genetically modified crops that are called Roundup Ready. So we could spray our food directly with this chemical before harvest. And so we started eating and drinking you know, Roundup by the, the mid 1990s. And it only took 10 years of that pattern to reverse this cancer epidemic and everything else that I described on the public health map. And so what we did in 2012 was start to put all those pieces together. I'm like, my God, this chemical glyphosate got into the water system and had this trickle down effect over a generation of period that completely annihilated uh, human health throughout the sector that we see the highest concentrations of this chemical. And so we started to innovate on that public health message. And you know, by 2014, we had launched a dietary supplement line that was taking advantage of, of these fossil soils and re-delivering the nutrients that have been destroyed by the use of glyphosate and chemical farming. And by re-delivering those nutrients, we were seeing a lot of healing happen in petri dishes and the humans, not because the supplement was doing anything, but because humans, when given adequate nutrition, immediately start into a regenerative journey of their own. So really it's just supporting the natural capacity of the body to regenerate and, and heal. And so that was, you know, both the aha moment of a public health crisis around chemical farming and its influence on our food system. And then ultimately on the opportunity to, to add back those deleted nutrients uh, and, and see what would happen at the public health level. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's, that's kind of amazing that you guys were able to pinpoint that's what was going on. And, um, I think everybody, not everybody, but I think it's well known today that Roundup is a problem and glyphosate is a problem, but it's still out there, right? It's still very much present in the world that we live in. And I'm wondering what you think we can do as a collective we to, you know, we're, we're getting the word out, but what can we do to get these companies to stop using these products and people to, I mean, our soils are so damaged, right? So the regenerative farming movement is trying to change that. But beyond that, what, in your opinion, what can we do here to try and reverse some of this? Yeah, that was the same question we asked ourselves, you know, a couple of years into this journey, realizing like, okay, dietary supplements to try to replace missing nutrients is chasing after the wind. 
uh, we've got to change the way in which food is produced again in the world. And so we set out with uh, a nonprofit mission with Project Biome, the first project of which was Farmer's Footprint. And this was an effort through awareness, education, innovation, and policy to start to change the environment of food systems and agriculture systems at large through those, those four pathways of change. To, to create change, you have to create an awareness of A, the problem, and B, maybe the cause. But more importantly, uh, awareness and education around the solutions. And so Farmers Footprint became you know, one of the one of the orgs really pushing this message to not just farmers, but really to all stakeholders in the entire food system that we've got to move towards a chemical free regenerative food system where the soil and its vitality becomes chore number one for the farmer. And that's that's basically what regenerative farming is. It's it's not, you know, there's always been permaculture and biodynamic farming and all that. And regen has become a catch term that basically says instead of crop production, you start to picture yourself as a life production force. And so everything you do is there to increase the biodiversity and, and metabolic function of the soil. By doing that, your plants that grow out of that are so much more abundant in their productivity and in their resilience against disease. So suddenly there's no need for herbicides, pesticides and the rest because you have a healthy plant. And, and the, those healthy plants also repel weeds, which is phenomenal. So not only does it no disease, they push out the weeds and they you get this abundant harvest uh, back to where it was you know, a couple of decades back. And so it's exciting to recover the vitality of the farms through a process of eliminating chemicals. And in a lot of ways, this was not indifferent to what I was doing in my hospice service. So after I left the university, I got a third subspecialty in hospice and palliative care. And that was such an exciting time as a physician to know I was doing no harm because I was eliminating all the drugs that they'd been on. And so you, you admit somebody hospice, they got three weeks, three months to live. Uh, you stop all their pharmacy that doesn't have to do with pain control or whatever it is. And 10% of them immediately get so much better that they live on and they have to be discharged from hospice because they were actually dying from their medications, not from any disease process. And so to see that kind of regenerative capacity, like when we stop putting in chemicals, things get better, you know, and that's what happens on farms very quickly. And so it's been a real joy to witness farmers all over the world now starting to realize, oh, my God, I'm losing my farm and its economics due to the cost of inputs. And out in Virginia and, and where I started my clinic, People on fixed incomes that were on, you know, food stamps or, you know, some other safety net program, they were on, you know, meals on wheels and, you know, they were basically starving all the time. They were on a fixed income of, you know, 600 to $1,200 a month and their co-pays for their medications on Medicaid or Medicare or whatever were still $600 a month. So they're spending the majority of, you know, anywhere from 100 to 50% of their income on co-pays for pharmacy. So they're bankrupting the home and then they're dealing with the consequences. Anytime you get more than four drugs in the system and absolutely 100% of the time with six drugs in the system, you have drug-drug interactions that are negative on biology. And it's not unusual in these situations to find people on 13 to 30 drugs. And so it's, the, the number of drug drug interactions that are happening your typical pharmaceuticalized you know person that's in a marginalized you know socioeconomic status they're spending the majority of their time going to doctor's offices getting enough gas in the tank to go to their next doctor's visit uh, you know dealing with insurance companies all day long trying to get reimbursed for things they can't afford and they, they're in this bureaucratic morass on top of feeling like crap every day and brain fogged and drug drug interactions on their centric acting drugs like it's, it really is you cannot overstate the toxicity of life in a typical American home now in, in our heartland of America and so it's it's really 
interesting to go in and say, you know, we're going to eliminate the entire cost, but also the entire weight of that biology that you're putting into your body every day. And let's remember what you do. What does what your original biology want to do right now? And it turns out that people have an innate capacity to heal that is programmed into every single cell in their body. If you weren't healing all the time, you would be dead on day three of life. The rate of change in the body is so dramatic. The entire gut lining has to completely turn over, replace itself completely, which is billions of cells every three days since the day you were born. And so you are a generative factory of human body and you are making a new human body every few days. Every three months, you have a new liver. Every seven years, you have a new brain. Like it, every single cell in your body is new all of the time. So why is it that we start to age? Why is it that we start to accumulate inflammation? Why is it that we start to accumulate disease that doesn't go away every day because we have a new body? And the answer is because the environment is what predicts the biology. And so really we are living in an environment that is daily coding for a, for a demise of health, for a decrement in vitality. And so it's your environment that is aging you more than your biology aging itself. Wow, there's so much to unpack here. You know, I think so much of what you said seems probably daunting and overwhelming for some people out there, but then there's a lot of hope in what you said, because if your body is rebuilding itself and regenerating and it has the capacity, the innate capacity to heal, then that's, that should provide a lot of people out there with some hope, but yet we're, you know, what you're saying, and Marty and I've talked about this before on the podcast can seem very out there to some people, right? So I guess from a practical standpoint, you know, like what can we start doing? You know what? I mean, someone's out there on a bunch of medications and doesn't know how to easily, you know, eat well, you know, what do you suggest? Yeah. You guys are asking all the right questions as to kind of my life path here. So <laughs> once we had kind of uncovered all this stuff and start to see the whole lens through this different world of, okay, the environment is coding for disease. If we change the environment, disease goes away. If the food has become part of the environment that is diseasing us, what does that mean? So, okay, we're gonna have to radically re relate, change our relationship to food, which means we're gonna have to eat closer to home. These 3,000 mile, 5,000 mile supply chains for your cucumbers that come in from, you know, Chile or whatever it is, that, that needs to stop. That's, that's so much chemicals and carbon footprint between you and that vegetable patch that there's no way there's health left in that thing. It was picked unripe, ripened under ethylene gas under thousands of miles of shipping, you know, put on a grocery store shelf covered in wax or, you know, cucumber wrapped in plastic or some ridiculousness. And so you're getting this thing that is so artificial in its, you know, creation and delivery. Uh, and it's that disconnect between real nature. And so helping our people start to regrow food. And it's not like you have to grow 100% of your food, which no, no American is going to do. Instead, just get a foothold back to real nutrients. And so it starts with as simple as one plant. If you can get a single mint plant, a basil plant, a tomato plant growing in your window this spring, you will change your relationship to the food system, which is to say a change in relationship to the soil, which is a change in the relationship to the microbiome, this incredible ecosystem of life within the earth that is not only in the soil of the ground beneath your feet, but the soil of your intestines. Your intestines are the garden that allows human biology to occur. And as we have a demise of the soil quality out in the farm or within your own gut, the plants naturally diminish in their, their immune system and their resilience against, you know, infestation, et cetera. And so this whole thing of like, now we have pandemics all the time. Well, that's very predictable because if you continue to decrement through the use of antibiotics in our food, water and doctor's offices, 
if you're constantly annihilating the microbiome of its vitality, the plants, i.e. the organisms, are going to get weaker and weaker and be more prone to viral expression, fungal expression, all of this stuff. And it's not the virus attacking us, it's the virus being expressed through a system that's failing and therefore calling for the immune system to activate. We express viruses when we need the immune system to mount a systemic inflammatory reaction that we would call a fever, you know, fatigue, brain fog, all the things that you get when you get flu. Those are symptoms that your body was calling in to regenerate the body. You were in such an atrophic state, you were such in a state of atrophy biologically that you're, you finally got to this place where like, if we don't do something dramatic and stimulate every single cell in our body to turn over quickly, we're going to die. And so when you get to that point of quote unquote sickness, that's your body literally expressing the reaction you need to become new again. And so all of the things that we now equate is like, oh gosh, that's too bad you got sick. I, from the last 15 years, I've realized, oh my God, this is the moment to celebrate is this is your body saying, hey, your lifestyle is killing you. Your environment is killing you. We're gonna express this thing where you can't get out of bed and answer the emails 14 hours a day. You can't get out of bed and do travel a million miles a day. You've got to settle down. You've got to sleep. You need to let the metabolism reset. You need to eat nothing for five days to give your gut complete reset, allow the immune system to, to, to reorient itself to itself. And now you can go back about your life. <laughs> I would just say there's something to be said for that. Like there are people out there that are sick every other minute. Like I know people every other day they're sick. And I always think to myself, like, what's going on? Like, what, how are you living your life? And I do think it very much is connected to the things you're mentioning. And also just going back to how you talked about the symptoms, you know, that the, are, is the body calling to regenerate or whatever, We've heard you talk about fevers on other podcasts, and I think the fever is such a good example of people trying to just get rid of the fever and send their kid off to school or whatever it is when you actually want to have that fever, right? And maybe you can talk a little bit about why the fever is actually helping your body. That's right. Yeah. So fever is a super powerful tool, an incredible anti-cancer tool. So, you know, some of the most effective ways to kill cancer cells are now practiced at a lot of, you know, centers around the world. The U.S. has been very slow to adopt this, but you go to most other industrial countries and, and what they're doing is hyperthermia treatment. So they'll heat the body with heating, heating blankets and all that until you reach 104 degrees, 105 degrees, and then they give you a very tiny dose of chemotherapy. The accentuation of the, the metabolic force of the thermal effect of a fever is inducing a killing effect on cancer cells and is demanding of them a, a metabolic rate they can't keep up with. And so the cancer, it puts the cancer cell in a very you know, vulnerable space just having a fever. And so you can do that through, you know, induction, through heating blankets, but your body will eventually do that. If you start to get an accumulation of cancer cells in your body and all that, the system is extremely intelligent and it knows how to rid itself of cancer cells. If it didn't, you'd have cancer by the time you were 18 months old and we'd all die of it before we were three. We know how to prevent cancer because the cellular metabolism has this innate intelligence that if, you know, stagnancy and disconnect, loneliness, you know, starts to occur at the cellular level, it has these mechanisms like fever to kick in and cr create this, you know, this trimming of, of damaged biology that can occur. So kind of like trimming back the branches on the rose bush, you want to trim out the diseased systems within the body that have disconnected themselves from the nutrient density of the soil of your gut, et cetera. And so you're really going in to do the pruning 
of the cells that aren't just aren't connected any longer and allow all of the resources to get back to the core group of healthy, you know, connected cells that are there to, to be in abundance. And so in a lot of ways, this is the journey of fever, which is, you know, induce a stressor that cleans up the system. And, and I'd say that's the case with almost all adaptive things about illness. Again, like chronic fatigue syndrome, people see that as a disease. And so they keep fighting against it and trying to push through it rather than realizing, oh, this is my body putting me in a metabolic state intentionally so that I can get past this, this you know, environmental injury that I sustain every day. So they're, they're given drugs to stimulate them and they're given you know, lifestyle programs, go exercise more and all this when their body is saying, don't exercise, don't move. We're at a low metabolic state. We got to do this. And, and so almost everything we do to people with chronic symptoms is there to try to treat the symptoms as if they're the problem rather than an, a harbinger of the truth, a harbinger of the pathway forward. And so for, again and again, we have to tell our patients, look, stop trying to run from the fever, stop trying to run from the pain, go into it, go into that symptom, literally dive into it and ask yourself, what is this teaching me? What, what got me here? Why do I have chronic fatigue? Why do I have chronic pain? What's underneath that? What emotion is underneath that? Okay, if that's the emotion, what is the human event that occurred that induced that symptom of that emotion? And so you can drill down really quickly with a patient at the bedside when you start to see everything as a, a signal, signal of truth rather than a, 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 you know, some sort of threatening symptom that is the problem. The symptom constellation in your body, whether that be a sore right knee or an autoimmune condition of your thyroid, both are showing you a path towards better health. And if instead you just try to cover up the pain or, or you just go on thyroid hormone and say, well, I'm just stuck with a thyroid disease and you ignore the fact that your body got confused as to what was you and you try to go keep living the life, same lifestyle, of course, there's going to be a decrement in function because you didn't address the underlying cause to something that made itself obvious. Yeah. And I, I mean, our bodies are these amazing, like super machines. And I think you know, so many, because of the world we live in, people aren't listening to their bodies, which ultimately is what you're saying. And so we should be thanking the symptoms that we get instead of, you know, cursing them when we get a fever or have the inflammation, because it is true. Like if I think back, even like the times that I do get sick, it's like, yep, you know, you're not getting enough sleep. You're not taking care of yourself, but you have to slow down. And it's your body's way of communicating with you. And something you said, Zach, was like, about loneliness at the cellular level. And what have you seen in particular? I know you talk about cancer and our emotions being stored at the cellular level and what happens or what can happen with, with respect to disease. And yeah, I'll start at the cancer side of it and then with the lonely cell. So cells are inherently connected. That's how multicellular life happens. And this is downplayed a lot. In fact, you know, most doctors have you know, long forgotten if they were even ever taught it that every cell is connected to every cell around it by fiber optic cables. These are called gap junctions. And these are bundles of cables that are extremely dense, uh, similar to cutting a bike cable or something like that, where you cut that bicycle cable and you find thousands of little fibrils uh, of tiny little cables that make up the one big cable. Gap junctions are thousands of tiny little cables that connect one cell to another in these little bundles. And the amazing thing is that when you zoom in with electron microscopy, you find out that every one of those things, every one of those little fibrils is actually hollow, a perfect tube running from one cell to the other. And on the end of each of those tubes is a perfect aperture, just like you would find on a camera lens that lets light in and out. 
And so you have light transfer system, a fiber optic cable system with thousands of cables between adjacent cells that allow for coordinated communication through a fiber optic light system. It's phenomenal. And so when we say we are a quantum computer, that is absolutely the truth. We are quantum computers that are calculating trillions of data points every second throughout the entire system of 70 trillion connected human cells that are working with 1.4 quadrillion bacteria that are working with 14 quadrillion mitochondria living inside of each of your cells. These are astronomical numbers. These are like more, more cells than our stars and, and multiple galaxies. So this is really a journey into the quantum world of, you know, the astro astronomical scale of a human body. And it only happens correctly in utero to form a perfect fetus, which is an incredible phenomenon. How does one cell become 50 trillion and migrate to all the right places? And this liver knows how to become the liver, the kidneys become the kidneys. It's astronomically complex, astronomically impossible that this happens again and again in the wombs of women that don't even know they're pregnant, right? And so they're unaware of their pregnancy and then suddenly there's a perfect fetus living in them. How is this possible? is possible through the connection of communication. And so an interconnected cellular system with unfettered access to information always knows its self-identity at the cellular level and at the macro-organism level. And so that unfettered access to information is, is another description of health. What is health? It is unfettered access to information across the system. To get that unfettered access to communication, you need those fiber optic cables to be connected all the time. Turns out that almost all of the chemicals that we've ever recognized to be carcinogenic break those fiber optic cables. Starting as far back as the discovery of alcohol many thousands of years ago, alcohol breaks those tight junction connections and gap junctions uh, below them. And so that, that breakage of connection between cells is, you know, the very earliest toxins. Today, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen and, and Motrin and the like, these are the most common toxins to these tight junction systems. But even our medications that we use for things like that, things as benign as like constipation. So you can go to Costco, you can buy gallon jugs of Miralax over the counter. And that Miralax is a horrible toxin to the tight junctions and gap junctions and leaves cells lysed apart. When cells start to disconnect and they are now not, not given access to that, that unfettered access to information and they start to screw up their information stream, they start to, to fail in their ability to repair. Disease is really a phenomenon of the rate of repair exceeding the rate of, uh, or, or being exceeded by the rate of injury. And so it's a simple ratio. How fast do you repair? How fast do you injure? If, if your repair is faster, you're fine. You can live forever. If your injury is faster, you're going to get disease. And so a cell that becomes isolated suddenly radically changes that ratio and the rate of injury far outstrips its rate of repair because it doesn't have access to information and doesn't have access, access to the, to the restorative you know, nutrient pool that it needs. So it can't get nutrients from adjacent cells. One of the first things that happens in a diseased cell is the mitochondria that live inside that cell, which are little bacteria that make all your energy start to dysfunction and they can't make en enough energy themselves. That's no problem if you're connected because the, the adjacent cells can pass you energy through the form of ATP and electric energy in the form of light. And so the, the shared resources are abundant and ever, ever regenerative in a connected system. But when you start to go into a drug environment that's clipping all of that space, you start to get an isolation deficiency in mitochondrial metabolism, therefore a lack of energy, therefore a lack of repair, and you slide into cancer very quickly. Then 1996 happens, and this is when we genetically modify our entire food system to be able to handle Roundup spraying directly. 
and suddenly glyphosate goes berserk. And it turns out that what we've shown in our lab over the last 10 years, again and again, on every single cell type that we've put this on, small intestine, large intestine, stomach tissue, blood-brain barrier, kidney tubules, liver cells, vascular cells, every single cell you touch this stuff with, the first thing it does is breaks all the gap junctions and, and tight junctions. And so we started eating and drinking a chemical in the 1980s and started eating it in spades in the 1990s. And every, every year since then, more and more quantities showing up in our food system that leaves our cells in isolation with a low state of metabolism, i.e. a low state of repair. And therefore, we had the chronic disease explosion that happened in the 1990s to 2000s. And here we find ourselves on the, on the verge of a sixth extinction event. 50% of life on Earth gone in just 40 years with a 10,000 time increase in the rate of extinction of species over the last 40 years. And we've got about 60 harvests left on the planet from, a, from an agricultural standpoint. 97% of our soils in the world are now depleted or severely depleted of carbon and other critical nutrients for life. And we're failing in our, in our biologic health as, as a global community behind those soils. It's estimated that we have maybe 80 years left of human fertility at the speed at which we're, we're going infertile for immodal sperms, you know, defective uh, ovarian function and the rest. And so we, we can scientifically prove that we're almost extinct. And yet our rate of you know, awakening is frighteningly slow here. And, and so that keeps us waking up every morning early and, and pounding the pavement with farmer's footprint and everything I do every day is just, just to help get this awareness. Because what I, what I le am left with at the end of the day is this tiny little glimmer of hope that humans, when given information and given a little bit of space, you ask me, what's my non-negotiable? It's that little bit of space in my morning. That's where creativity happens. And a human mind, given a moment of creativity with a new set of information, is the most extraordinary technology we've ever seen. Humans are so inventive, so creative. I, mean, I just, I'm always awestruck. I, I was in, in you know, engineering and I was a general contractor for a lot of years, paid my way through you know, schools and everything else. When I got done with the university, academia and all that, and was just had my little clinic. I wasn't making any money. So I started a construction company with my brother. So building houses and all that. And when you're a builder and you've got a sense of how to bring something out of the ground up to a three-story residence or something like that, and then you go and you land in New York City, it blows your freaking mind, the amount of infrastructure that's been built into every city in this world. We build hundred story skyscrapers as if it's like, you know, building a McDonald's these days. Like we don't even blink at our sheer capacity for productivity, ingenuity, you know? And so I'm very confident that we are birthing children on this planet right now that will redream a completely different world if they're given the right information to work with. And so that's my passion is, can we get the right information into the hands of children? And so our next, effort, I think, is really changing the school system. Uh, we have to take kids out of memorizing what created this world as it is today and start giving them the resources to understand the world as it stands today so they can imagine the next thing. If we keep teaching them to build more of what we've done already, we go extinct. If we give them that pause, if we let them stay in that dreamlike state just for a few minutes in the morning every day at school and say, you know what? Everything in the world is dysfunctional right now. Everything that humans do right now is against nature and it's killing our capacity to stay. Take a few hours this morning and here's a pile of Legos and here's some blank journals and here's some you know, drawing pads. Start to paint us the new city. What would your house look like if you knew that Mother Nature was... The, your access point to health? How would you design a hospital if you knew that nature and its complexity of the micro ecosystem, the biome was the only foundation for life? What would that hospital look like? What would your nursing homes look like if you found out that biodiversity 
of generations around the dinner table were the most predictive sign of a blue zone, i.e. people live past 100 years if they eat with more than one generation at the dinner table. What would you design the, the dinner table to look like if you knew that your touch to multiple generations was your longevity? And so I get really excited about our future if we're willing to let go of our present day, which means we're going to have to pause. We're going to have to relax and say, you know what? Maybe it doesn't matter that we go grow our bank accounts another 10% next year. Maybe what's more important is if we go grow our gardens 10% every year. Right now, we grow less than 0.01% of our food in our backyard gardens. In the 1940s, that was 40% of our food. And so we've gone from 40% to 0.01 or 0.001%, depending on who you're reading. And so we've lost our contact with food. And every family that we've touched through Farmers Footprint that has re-engaged that nature, some of them have left the cities and bought farms. Some of them have dug up the backyard lawn and planted a a permaculture garden right in their little suburban plot. Some of them built food forests right on their third story patio of their apartment building. If you get reconnected to your food, your health and vitality and your mental capacity for creativity will radically change. And if you get creative, you will create the world that we all know is possible in our hearts. And now a quick shout out to our sponsor, Organifi. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. I discovered Organifi about three years ago and fell in love with the gold chocolate blend, which I enjoy in the evenings. I love that it contains ashwagandha, which reduces stress and supports a healthy cortisol level. And it really gives me that fix when I want something chocolatey or sweet in the evening. And it's perfect and nice and calming before bed. And I'm really enjoying the Organifi green juice, which has a ton of superfoods in it. And it's so much easier than juicing. And it's also great if you struggle to get your greens in. Each Organifi blend is easy to use by simply mixing it with water. It's great on the go and there's no compromise in quality for taste. Organifi takes great pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high quality superfoods too by heading over to Organifi.com slash living well. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash living well and use our code living well for 20% off your entire order. Wow, that is beautiful. I, you you said so many things that like I wanted to stop you and interrupt you and ask you questions about. You're welcome to do that anytime. I I just want to back up for a minute because I want to go back to the gap junctions for a second that you were talking about. And I'm wondering, you know, you said that things like alcohol and Tylenol and Advil and Miralax and all that stuff disrupts that, those junctions, correct? If I understood you correctly. Yeah. Less Tylenol, more the ibuprofen. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Ibuprofen. Um, So I'm wondering how long does it take? Like how, you know, are you talking about pop it, you know, having a drink once a week? Are you talking about somebody who's drinking every day for decades? Like, you know, this is, 
potentially shocking information to people, our society, you know, people are drinking on a regular basis. People are, I know people that have been taking Miralax for years, like doctors are telling them to do these things. So, you know, yes, the children need to be educated. I feel like the doctors need to be educated. People, I know people in my parents' generation that, you know, and this is no disrespect to doctors. I'm married to a doctor. Like their word is the word of, you know, the be all end all. And I think that, you know, how do we change this whole system and get people to really start thinking for themselves and tuning into themselves and what works for them and not just what somebody else is telling them to do. So we've been on that journey. So all your questions are spot on. We asked ourselves the same questions over time. And uh, yeah, I taught doctors for years. So when we first uncovered the science around glyphosate and all this, I traveled all over to every integrated medicine place that would possibly invite me to speak. I was sharing my science and you know, everything we were doing in the laboratory and all that. And it was making strides. You know, we were we definitely debuted all of our supplements in doctor's offices, not not on consumer shelves. Uh, because it was the only people I knew how to talk to coming out of academia. And I, you know, anybody listening to this podcast can recognize I'm not, not great at <laughs> talking at a rate that the brain can, can take in information, but that the, there's this exciting situation that started to unfold is that the consumer started forcing the change of the doctors. Doctors started getting aware of this information because people started walking to their clinic saying, I have leaky gut. And I was trained to say there's no such thing as leaky gut. I was literally trained that that is a made up disease by chiropractors. Yeah, I was literally taught that. I've heard that from my internal medicine doctor. And so you've been taught that you've been, because the doctors are taught that. They've been given no evidence to that end. They're just told that. Well, it turns out there's a huge body of science that says that gut permeability increases with all these different drugs I just told you. So they call it gut permeability instead of leaky gut. And so, oh, leaky gut's not a disease. Well, yeah, of course, science around gut permeability is very important, blah, 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 vascular permeability. Oh my God, that's really bad, you know? But if you say glyphosate damages blood vessels, they're like, oh, who's ever said that, you know? So it's this subtle difference in language that keeps the doctor insulated from the possibility of, that the environment is actually creating disease and changing the environment would change the disease patterns in their patients. And, you know, if, if you've ever gone to a doctor's office with any condition and asked the question, do you think I could change my diet and this would help? You've likely gotten laughed out of the office. Are you kidding? No, your food has absolutely nothing to do with your autoimmune condition, your cancer, whatever it is. And so I, I used to be one of them. I, I know very strongly that I believe that cancer did not come from food. And now I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that cancer definitely comes from food every day. And so it took me, you know, 15 years of my own basic science laboratory proving to me every single day that the chemicals carried in our food system was causing the cancer that my patients were manifesting. But it took that much time to reprogram myself because I had so dogmatically been taught one way of belief, which is disease leaps out and attacks healthy people. Not that health is a decrementing you know, phenomenon due to your environmental exposures and therefore disease manifests itself as a necessary expression of, of a problem. And so that, that's, that's been a long reprogramming. So I, I have compassion on the doctors. So where did we go? So we decided, all right, we're going to have to recreate education. And I was doing that one patient at a time. And my clinic was always losing money for 10 years. My my clinic lost money because I was spending two to three hours for every intake of a patient 
starting in the beginning. All right, tell me about everything, you know, and they want to tell you about all their labs and they got to chart this thick because they've seen 120 doctors and now they're going to finally come see this quack that thinks food is good for them. And so they come to this person and they're like, oh, all this stuff. And so it takes you a long time just to listen to their story because they're so wedded to their story. And they're like, this is, this took me years to build this data about why I feel the way I do. And then you need to very gently tell them this whole pile here is a whole description of all the symptoms from just one thing that happened you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, which was your disconnect from nature. It happened through your food. It happened by the way that you live your life. You drive in plastic off-gassing cars to a plastic off-gassing cubicle. You never see the sun. You don't exercise. You don't breathe. You have actually no idea what breath and vascular systems are supposed to do. You have no idea what exercise is supposed to look like. You have no idea what nutrition is supposed to look like because everybody's telling you 10 different things all the time. You're so confused and so disconnected from nature. You've lost your innate knowingness of who you are. And that's the condition that all of our patients walk in with is this state of complete morass of information that's got them so lost. And I would say the biohackers are in the same same thing. So like they, they exited out of Western medicine and they got so inundated with information. They've got the same seven inch chart full of all of their aura ring sleep charts of the last six years. They're trying to dissect down. Like, well, I think I got two little REM sleep here. And my God, look what happened over here. I've got this fasting blood sugar of 98. You know, it's like, my God, you're dying for all of the data and you can't have no idea who you are. The fact is you are a quantum computer that knows its way to health every second or else you would have died long ago. And so we slowly realized that we were wasting our time and our breath by doing this one patient at a time. We realized it would be much more powerful to do this in group settings. And it took me years to get that. But we started an online curriculum where I could deliver, you know, 30 hours of content instead of one patient visit at a time that would take me a year. I can now do that in a few weeks online. And so we developed this one-on-one -on -one curriculum to my patients and ultimately to the, the greater world. And then we realized during the pandemic, my gosh, people are so isolated and lonely right now. We should connect them and do this in groups so that people have some sort of socialization while they're moving through their health journey. And we, of course, discovered, oh, my God, people heal so much faster in groups than they do one on one with a coach. And that, that was an aha moment for me. I had really resisted group coaching. I, I, I thought it was a fallacy. Um, I thought, my God, no, it's so important because here I am a doctor, one-on-one -on -one patient care. You got, you look in that person in the air, you got that deep trust connection. You're like, that's where the power is. No, no, no. That's just an ego trip. The power is in humans seeing the possibility of healing happen. And when you see that happen in somebody that you watched walk into that virtual room three weeks ago, and you suddenly see a different human being three weeks later, they've not only changed their food, they've changed their relationships. They left their abusive marriages. They left their abusive jobs. They started the company. They've always, the speed at which these people will change their world when they're just given that moment of creativity, when they're given that small breath between you are a sick human being and you are a healing human being waiting for a new environment, those are two very radically different messages. And just giving them that moment of belief that they are a healing machine with a creative capacity that is the expression of something of the divine within them, my God, does things change quick. And when you see that happen in front of you, it's so much easier to say, you know what, that's what I want. I know I can do that because that person did that. And so it's been a real joy over the last couple of years to watch this journey of intrinsic health really blow up. And so that's the eight week program journey of intrinsic health, which is to say that health comes from within you, not something you're going to find in a bottle. And so we, we're, we're really excited about this you know, program because it's really reconnecting people to their original information, the original information within them that's emanating every day, but is unheard because they've been trained out of listening.
And so it's really a training program into back to true relationship with your breath, your nutrition, your, your patterns of fasting and eating, your patterns of movement and rest, your patterns of, of metabolism, your patterns of sleep-wake cycles, your patterns of, uh, you know, relationship to community, family, et cetera, your, your relationship to your emotions. All of these things get to change in this eight-week course and when we really do this. So eight pillars of, of human biology that we worked out over a 10-year period in our clinic that now, you know, the last five years has been expressing itself in this online program. And so that's been my slow journey. And it was exciting that, when, you know, within a year or two of launching that, we started to realize that, you know, more than half of the people taking our courses were not patients, but they were doctors and coaches and nurse practitioners. And so now we have a coaches program, certified uh, CME course for, for coaches that can take the eight-week co uh, coaches journey. And it teaches them all the content within themselves, but they also get to go through the, their own coaching experience where they're coaching one another and, and getting to see this phenomenon of application of trust within their own body reoccur. And so that's been a really beautiful, beautiful ex excursion into what could education start to look like. And, and just last week, you know, it's the years of that going on. Uh, but one of our graduates from the program happened to be an MD and uh, was teaching down at a university in, in Atlanta and reached out to say, hey, do you think we could create a program like this for the residents that are going through our medical school and the nurses that are going through these programs because it would really change their education big. So it's taken us you know, 10, 13 years to, to get to the point where we're ready to participate in that. But I think that's the answer is, you know, the answers, the revolutionary answers cannot come from academia because of the way in which peer-reviewed science and funding works. But, but the answers can be applied in those spaces when they come from outside in. And, and that's ultimately how all innovations tend to happen, you know. So that's why the pharmaceutical companies keep themselves out of academic centers. They do all of the intense, you know, questions and innovations in R&D in the private sector. And then when it becomes successful, then they'll go to a university clinical trial to get the validated study or whatever it is. And then doctors suddenly trust it and then it becomes obvious. But you don't see the private sector trying to innovate in the labs of of academia. Academia is very good at systematically sorting through to, to kind of find out the minutia, but with a big revolutionary new idea, it's going to have to come from outside. And this big revolutionary idea is that our environment is the predictor of health or disease and our, it's our relationship to that environment that we need to rediscover. Well, and I would almost add, you need big business to jump on board, right? Like we want the businesses of the world to collaborate instead of just worry about where their next dollar is going to come from. And I feel like if they took a step back and realized that they could make money and make the world a better place, we would just be so much better off overall. Well, it's getting easier to do. So, you know, even back as far as like 10 years back, 2012, one of the very first places I was invited to speak outside of doctors, you know, symposiums was Capital One campus in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, a few miles from my clinic and they got wind that there was some doctor that was teaching nutrition and changing things. And they have 10,000 employees on that single campus and their number one cost by 2012, right behind salaries was health insurance. And so they were looking at anything they could find that would improve the health and productivity of their workforce because they were seeing a really rapid decrement, not just in you know, the, the amount of health, but also the productivity per employee was declining and it was measurable. And so, you know, the, fortunately for the last 10 years, I think, you know, big corporations are starting to move towards the realization that they have to be part of the solution, uh, or at least they're looking for solutions to, for their own peoples. And so we, we see this increasing trend towards companies starting to self-insure, which means they're pulling themselves out of 
you know, Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield or whatever it is, and they're starting to self-insure their, their peoples, which says, okay, we'll pay for all health consequences in cash and we'll, keep, we'll basically keep that that costs that we were paying out to third parties and all that. And we will pull that in basically a pension fund kind of structure that allows us to build our own wealth to maintain the health of our people. Once you're paying for the health of your own people, now you're really incentivized as a company to keep those people healthy. So there's a very positive trend going that because the disease rate is getting so high, because dysfunction and productivity is, is so threatened, companies across the board are having to get into this game. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you get like Nestle, uh, who has pumped more you know, toxins into the food system than maybe any other company. And they've been more abusive, I think, to the humanitarian state of affairs overseas than any other company. They've done more you know, near slave labor than maybe any other country because they go into these developing countries and exploit indigenous and, and rural populations and create these extraordinarily precipitous economic situations, creating a lot of poverty and everything else. So you think, okay, here's, here's, must be Darth Vader. And then they hire a new CEO six years ago, Mark Schneider out of Germany. And Mark is mandated to, to pivot this company because they know they're going to go out of business and lose their foothold as the biggest food company in the world if they don't change quickly because consumers no longer want Nestle products. So Mark Schneider a couple of years ago comes out and says, you know, by 2030, we hope to have 14 million tons of regenerative organic, you know, supply chain to our, our foods at Nestle by 2030. And then, you know, a few months later, he comes out and says 97% of the foods that we produce as a company are bad for your health. He made both of those statements and did not lose his job, which means he has a board that also agrees with those statements. Uh, if he had made those statements 10 years ago, fired instantly. He's making those statements because he's supported by a board that knows they are losing market share at such a rapid rate that they are no longer going to be a Fortune 500 company in the next 30 years if they don't pivot. And PricewaterhouseCoopers, where you used to work there, Stephanie, is really evident of this. You know, in fact, it was there when I was speaking at PwC at one of their their corporate events on, on their innovation team. There, I think this was 2019 or something like that. Um, the speaker right before me had this phenomenal slide showing that of the Fortune 100 companies that were first named back, I don't remember, in the 1960s or 70s, there was only one le left in the Fortune 500. And so all of those mega companies in the 1960s were gone except for GE. And GE is now at the bottom of that Fortune 500. And so as up to the point being, mega companies don't stay around forever because they can't change. They became so mega megalithic. And they're part of an old paradigm that made them wealthy, but they can't pivot for the weight that they carry. And that's where Nestle is at. And that's where General Mills is at. And that's where, you know, all of these food companies that made the, the processed foods reality of today, they can't pivot fast enough. And they're desperately looking for pivoting. And right now they're just doing M&A. They're doing mergers and acquisitions as fast as they can to try to buy companies that are making health food so they can add that to their portfolio. So that maybe that's the lifeboat that they have in 10 years when the rest of their companies are going out of business. So. So they're all becoming GEs. General Electric obviously is just a huge portfolio of, you know, of, of thousands and thousands of companies. That's why they stayed in business. GE is not the big producer of light bulbs that they were back in the day or whatnot. So, so this is what's happening to these mega corporations. They're having to wake up to the reality that humans change, consumers change, information changes, science changes. And if you're not agile and adjusting, consumers are going to get ahead of you and want something else. But I envision something even more exciting than that is what if consumers became producers and simply stop buying stuff? That's yeah. the future. 
I believe this is the future we're going for is let's hyper jump past slowly trying to transition Nestle and let's just become the food system today that we want in the future for our children and grandchildren. That's going to be a food system that's close to home, grown by somebody we know. If it's not our backyard, then it's the CSA or farmer's market up the street. If we don't know the farmer's market up the street, then we're going to meet a farmer out there in the countryside. We need to get that close to the food system immediately. If A, we're going to have a healthy healthy household, or B, we're going to have a company that has productive employees, or C, we have a public health status within a community or in a country that's in crisis, we have to get close to a real food system immediately. That means we're going to have to stop, you know, this codependence on an increasing amount of chemical inputs and fertilizer and all the jazz that we do to band-aid up a dying soil system and start to allow life to occur again. And when we allow life to occur beneath our feet and within our guts, we start to establish a very resilient biology very quickly. And so health is just a moment away if we choose it or extinction is just a moment away if we fail to change. So much to unpack. And I know we're, we don't have all day here. You know, I just think we talk about this a lot, like buying with your dollar and you know, that's not, it's not profitable to be, you know, selling a lot of kale and broccoli and nutrient rich food. That's not how these companies are going to make money. And so I love your thoughts and thinking and the progressiveness of what you've said with, okay, let's take it into our own hands. Let's not rely on all these companies. Because I do think that there's even the ones that are doing good and buying, you know, the organic companies, why are they doing it? They're doing it for their bottom line. And so I don't know that they're always doing it with the the pure intention of what you just. No, they're not trying to heal the planet or your household. They're just trying to stay in business. (laughs) Exactly. So taking it back to our own hands and just everyone out there, plant one, plant one, you know, make one tomato plant and your kids will love it when you, when they eat those tomatoes, because they're going to be the best tomatoes you've ever had. Or do one thing this spring. I love that. I mean, a couple of weeks after this episode drops, it's going to be Earth Day. You know, what better time to get back to Mother Earth uh, right. and embrace all that she has offered and all that she's given us. And so it's us living in, you know, in a partnership with her versus us kind of like thinking that we know better That's than right. her, which I feel like is where we've been the last, you know, many, many years. And I think the pandemic to some degree brought us back a little bit more closer, you know, when we were not driving as much and taking walks and having more time with our family and cooking more and all that. And then we quickly got back as soon as things opened up because everyone was sick of, you know, being tied hostage, which I agree. But there's some of that that I still miss. Some of those days that I still relish just having like hours to just cook and be with my family and and not worry about running from one thing to the next. So I anyway, mean, I went on a little rant there, but I just well, love what you said. It was filled with so there was filled, it was filled with so much hope. Which is yes, I agree. And and sadness too. Like listening to you talk about, you know, where the world is going if we don't make changes is very sad. Um, especially since I don't know that it's necessarily on a person's radar from day to day. But one thing that I was thinking about how you said, you know, to eat closer to home, change your relationship with the food system. Like I'm in Minnesota, Stephanie's in Minnesota. It is winter here. You know, yes, I can, I can set up a little something in my home and grow something, but it's not easy, but I for sure am motivated to do it, even if it's just one plant, but thinking about someone that lives in a climate like we do, where it's not you know, growing season all year round. Do you think that, you know, getting your food from a farmer's market or a local, you know, farm 
when it's not necessarily organic is better than going to like a Trader Joe's and buying the organic produce that's maybe coming from, you know, thousands of miles away. Like I, I struggle with this personally, like there, we do have a number of farmers markets in the area and a lot of them are not organic. And then I'm thinking, okay, they're sprayed with all the chemicals. So it's like, you know, you get it, you, you can spiral into this, like what's, what's the worst, what's the best option here? Yeah. It's an important questions. And so the, the answers are kind of exciting in that, you know, the closer you are to the garden, the better period. And so where you find the highest levels of glyphosate and residues of chemicals and all that is in processed foods, uh, because those are the ones that can be genetically modified. And so like a GMO corn, canola, soybean, uh, those ones grown under GMO are, are modified in such a way that they're actually not amenable to human consumption directly. Like you can't go chew corn off of a GMO corn stock and it's not edible. It doesn't taste good. It's, it doesn't, you know, bite off like a typical corn cob. And so your GMO corn is there being produced to, pr- to be processed into something. And, and amazingly, most of it's not even food. Most of it goes into ethanol for gasoline. The next, you know, highest might be, you know, plastics for textiles coming out of that canola and things like that. And so polyester and things like this can come from our food system. Um, And so, you know, our agricultural system rather. And then uh, another huge chunk of it all goes to animal feed. And so they can grind it up and crunch it down and then try to give it to animals and to fatten them up quickly before they die of the cancer. And so, you know, something like one to five percent of cows that are butchered already have liver abscess or liver cancers going on by the time they're butchered. And so these animals tolerate a very sick supply chain because they're butchered within a few months of going into a feedlot, but they're being pounded with, you know, all this chemical nutrient. So this is, you know, where most of that's going. So if you go to your farmer's market, none of that is GMO. Those are not GMO corn, you know, carrots that are there or corn that's there. Now, they might be using herbicides and pesticides around the crops, but they can't treat the crops directly with those, you know, in general. So uh, pesticides, a little different pesticides they can spray, you know, typically into the crop itself. But herbicides, which, you know, kill green things, uh, are not going to end up in there. So you're not going to see glyphosate being sprayed directly on the carrots, no matter if they're organic or otherwise. But the residues can be real. And so there's a great website from the Environmental Working Group, uh, ewg.org. On there, you can just type this in, just clean 15, dirty dozen, Google that and the page will pop right up. And those show you the, the ones that are clean no matter how they're grown. So these are the 15, you know, vegetables and fruits that grown even under non-organic, you know, conventional chemical agriculture have very low residues of toxins. The dirty dozen, which typically is let off by strawberries and apples, but then there's a whole you know cascade below those. You you just never buy really unless they're you know you know the farmer and they're clean because those things are so chemically loaded. Uh, the number of chemicals in a strawberry today is just it just makes me sad how many times I see strawberries being served at kids' birthday parties or things like this. I mean they are just toxic. There's nothing, nothing worse than a strawberry sitting on a plate to make you go, oh my God, why is that here? You know, these are, these are just horrible things that you don't want in the home. These are 2,4-D, which is Agent Orange. This is atrazine, nicotinamides, you know, uh, dicamba. These are just horrific chemicals that are being sprayed into those strawberries. And so, Go to that EWG website and, and, and memorize the dirty dozen if you want to you know, keep yourself afraid of the bad stuff or memorize the clean 15 if you want to be magnetized to the good stuff. But whatever your, your favorite sticker or carrot is as far as your, your own behavior, 
memorize that website and that's going to really help inform your your buying patterns out there and so when you go to the farmer's market you can bravely shop non-organic if it's in that clean 15 uh, crop group there and then the other thing is you know try to get to know the farmers and this is tough because almost all farmers at a farmer's market it's typically not the farmer that's sitting there it's some somebody there who's you know 15 years old or something like that and they're trying to say yeah no we don't spray anything but if you really get to know the farmer, you can ask them, why aren't you organically certified, you know, and you might find out some interesting information is the amount of regulatory hoops they have to jump through to get it regulated as that would wipe out their entire income from a year of them growing that food. And so you realize quickly when you meet the farmers, like, all right, is that an authentic story as to why you're not organic? Or are they like, well, you know, we kind of do, we use a little bit, blah, blah, blah. Then you're like, all right, that's probably not my, my farm, you know, and a powerful way to do this is volunteer on the farm. So if you really want to know what's growing there and how it's done, go to the farmer's market, say, hey, where are you guys farm? Where's that at? Hey, do you mind if I bring my kids out and, and volunteer on your farm? Do you have any farm work days that, that we can come out to or whatever? And then you're going to really see on the ground, you know, is this look like a farm that I would want my children running around in? And you'll know pretty quickly. So. So those are some tools that you can use to, to kind of refine that. And in the end, just knowing the information you've heard in this last hour or whatever, it's, it's not there to frighten you. It's there to empower you to decisions. You in that little space between your dreams and your waking state, you're a child. You have a creative mind. You have the capacity to, to create a new world. And so this information I'm giving you is not there to scare you. It's actually the opposite. I want you to feel so hopeful that you could create a completely different body today if you just shift that environment. And I encourage my patients to do this radically. I make them change the, the location of their toothbrush to the other side of the sink. I make them move their shoes from this side of the thing to this side of the thing. It's these little ruts that you're stuck in that are predicting the body that you're building today. Switch sides of the bed. That's really radical. When I tell people to do that, like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I can't do that. I mean, that is pretty that, radical. That's insane. Like my husband sleeps over there. That's that's his side of the bed. Like. You switch sides of the bed, you're going to breathe differently. You're going to sleep on the other side of your body. You're going to completely change your biologic expression by changing the side of the bed. I'm kind of blessed in that I travel all the time for, for work. I was home for 22 days last year. That keeps me constantly in a state of change. I never can get in a rut and I'm always having to listen to my body of what I need that day very carefully because I don't have a routine to rely on. And so I have to sit there in that magical few minutes in the morning feeling into the creativity of my body and realize, oh my God, today I need it. I need to go find a park and walk. And I'm excited to be in a new park I've never been in because I'm going to touch flora and fauna I've never seen before. I'm going to walk down a trail and see a tree I've never hugged before. I'm going to sit beneath a fern and I'm going to breathe microbiome I've never breathed before. I can build myself a new body by the end of the day because I'm in a new town, because I'm in a new park, because I'm under a new tree. And so this is a very exciting reality that we're now in as we debut this world of genetics, epigenetics, microbiome, and everything else is that you can build something new constantly every day. The numbers of microbes is just starting to get daunting. We thought the healthy human gut was 10,000 species because that's what a typical American gut will contain. 10,000 species is pretty impressive. Compare that to three species in a probiotic, you realize health is never to come out of a probiotic. That is the opposite of health. That is, mono, that is a monocrop, not biodiversity. So we got to stop doing monocrop in our farms. You need to stop doing monocrop in our probiotics. And we start to need to rewild our guts, which means we need to get outside. We need to get back in touch with the soil systems. So the dietary supplements we focus on in our laboratory and produce are out of fossil soils to deliver the nutrients out of the soils rather than the bacteria 
bacteria in some sort of monotonous way. So these are sterile products that, that give the gut back the, the soil nutrients and the, and the communication network that allow cells to, to have that unfettered access to information. And so that, that's where we're at now as a science team and you know, supplement company and health you know, teams and everything else is we have got to get people, everybody connected back to nature, and which is to say reconnected to biodiversity. The more biodiversity you have, the more resilience you have, the more resilience, the more, more speed of repair you have, and you become a generative machine and, and you don't age the same way. And so that's, that's been a fun thing to see in my own body. You know, I think I'm the very first patient healed in my clinic, the very first patient to be improved in my lifestyle and, and through our, our you know, increasing learnings over the last 10 years and the first patient to be helped and supported by our supplements because A, I was the first person to go on them, but B, because I've seen in my own biology my age reverse and, and getting to wake up this morning and jump out of bed without any achiness that I know I had when I was, you know, 13 years ago at university, I always ached in the morning. I would ache for a good 10, 15 minutes to take me to get the gel out of my joints. And I was that way by the time I was 35 years old, let alone when I was you know, in my forties. Now, as I'm going into my you know sixth decade of life, I wake up without that achiness. That's remarkable. That that just it defies logic. Like that's nobody told me in med school that you could actually get biologically younger over time. And that's the that's the reality. We can get younger as we get more connected to our ecosystems and as we get more reconnected to self ultimately and start to trust this intuitive quantum computer that we're talking about. As you allow that mainframe computer to take back over and code its original math into your biology. The speed of repair, the speed of generation is so encouraging. It's so hopeful that we have bodies that are here to repair at an incredible rate and be resilient in the face of incredible toxicity. And so that, this is an, an exciting phase of science when we find out that we, we truly are built to be more than we've allowed ourselves to become to date. Uh, we can be more than we have been as a human species. We can express something much more resilient, beautiful, and intelligent than we've ever been before. This has been such a mind-blowing conversation, Zach, and I think we've just put a lot of power back into the people's hands and motivation, and you've peppered in so many, you know, just even practical tips and suggestions and just getting outside and planting your own garden and getting to know your farmer. And one thing that you just touched on, I know we wanted to mention, were your, was your product line and the supplements, and you did kind of touch on how they're different, you know, in the probiotics versus like even your gut support, the ion gut support, which ironically just was delivered to my house today. I ordered some, which I'm super excited to try. But can you just touch on that real briefly and let people know where they can find you and buy the products? Mm -hmm. And Yeah, that website yeah. is Intelligence of Nature. Uh, the acronym is ION there for Intelligence of Nature. Um, but intelligenceofnature.com and you can see all the science of glyphosate, see all the science of gluten sensitivity, see all the science that we've published in peer reviewed science journals and all this over the years. And so um, it's an ex exciting data bank of information that I think can help you know reinforce what you've heard today, really seeing the, the microscope images of guts that are falling apart and then repair themselves as soon as they see ION. That's unleashing a natural capacity of healing within the body. The supplement doesn't heal anything. The body heals itself with enough information. And so it's, it's a really beautiful thing to watch happen. And, and so all the science is there. Intelligenceandnature.com can get you the products, science spray. Skin support is very exciting. We just got back a big clinical trial uh, set of data here. Within just six weeks, it reverses UV damage on multiple levels of the skin. Um, and so the skin support one was, was formulated different than the gut one. This one interacts with the keratinocytes, which is the, the cells deep to your skin that produce skin cells. 
And so we're the first product to change your relationship to sunlight. And so we change mitochondrial stress when you get exposed to UV radiation. And we're showing now in the clinical trial, we can reverse uh, old UV damage uh, by giving more information. And so a cell with unfettered access to information heals damage. And so that's, that's an exciting thing to unleash. So the skin support, sinus spray is life-changing. Anybody going to sleep in a modern home that has air conditioning, heaters, all that, you've got sinus leak. You, you are definitely on post-nasal drainage. You definitely have immune dysfunction because of the forced air heating in your home. There's no way around it. You have an artificial microbiome that you're breathing. So supporting those sinuses every night before you go to bed with sinus spray on both sides and both nostrils, a few sprays, deep inhalation both times, get those sinuses changed. And you're not going to believe what it feels like to breathe normal within a few seconds of your first application. Minutes later, you're just like, whoa, this is what it feels like to breathe. And then you lay it down and go to sleep and realize this is what it feels like to wake up without post-nasal drainage all night long, which means you no longer have small bowel overgrowth of the wrong bacteria because you weren't dripping snot down into your small intestines all night long. And so there's this huge revolution that happens just out of the sinus spray. And then you do your skin support, your gut support, and your sinus spray, and you've completely changed the support system to the way in which you regenerate your body. So that's intelligenceinnature.com. Journeyofintrinsichealth.com is the website to the eight-week program if you're interested in that. We also have a new membership program. If you don't want to spend the money and the time to do the, the eight-week journey, you can get connected to uh, over a 1,000 people that are, are going through that program or have gone through that program and get connected to that community. We have an ongoing app that is a community app that allows you to stay connected to communities thinking the way that you are now that you've heard this content. When we connect as, as cells connect, we can create a new body. And it's about creating this new human body, this new human organism that will supersede this, this extinction event and, and give us the opportunity to create the future we all want. But we're going to have to do that together. And so the new, web, the new app and the new you know, membership program is there for us to all connect and say, what is the future that we want? How are we going to go and create that together? So those are some of your resources. If you want just education, ZachBushMD.com has an enormous amount of free education, dozens and dozens of hours of content and autism to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, you know, uh, end of life care, death, pain, major depression, suicide, addiction. We have, we have at all, we have global health education, some of that goes every quarter now. It was monthly during the pandemic and we put out an enormous amount of content about what are viruses, what is the immune system, what are vaccines, what are the, you know, so that people can just have more access to information so they can make informed decisions around their own health and better understand, you know, without fear, guilt, and shame, what is the health condition of our planet? Why are we having these stories of pandemics? What's actually happening underneath the, the hood there? And so uh, a lot of information for you to dive into there at ZachBushMD.com. You can always follow me on all the social media platforms, the blah, 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 blah. I always forget what they're even called, but great staff <laughs> that keeps communicating uh, out there to all the different platforms that are out there. Um, and you can find me there. So lots of information, lots of opportunities. I would love for you all to get engaged with FarmersFootprint.us. Uh, that's our nonprofit uh, arm on the Regen side. Um, we're launching Project Biome uh, to the world on Earth Day. Uh, we've been working for years to create a system of transformation for the entire planet. How do we get the, the biology of the whole planet to correct in the next 10 years? And so we have a three-step process to that that we'll be launching on Earth Day to the public there to, to give a debut on how every one of you can participate in a global restoration of biologic function and how we reverse this climate crisis, food crisis. Uh, you know, everything else that we hear in the news, that's reversible and it's easily healed when we give Earth a chance to recover. So a uh, huge opportunity to engage there. Farmersprint.us, by the way, has a great um, 
uh, course on backyard gardening. And so um, if you've never had a garden or you're thinking about this and you're like, oh my God, I would be overwhelmed to even start very simple coursework that takes you through the process of taking just a small spot in your lawn and taking that into a raised garden bed and how to how to create you know a, a safe space for you and your kids to to start to engage the food system in a different way there's actually a kids curriculum one too on you know just very simple one two pager on on uh, what is regenerative uh, agriculture what does regenerative food look like and it's a kid's curriculum and a kid's you know step-by-step process to planting their own garden and all that so uh, that's been now taught all over the world including schools in south africa and the right like so uh, it's a very exciting easy place for you to really get your your family engaged uh, we always encourage you to get engaged in some of the storytelling stuff we have um, uh, meet the farmer is an incredible series we have I think it's over 60 uh, mini documentaries now on the website that uh, introduce you to a family farm that's doing the right thing by creating a regenerative food system back to the public or back to their community. And you can get engaged with those. Those those change the lives of those farmers so quick. And when you change the life of a farmer, other farmers start to pay attention. So our revolution with Farmers Footprint has been let the farmers tell their own stories of success rather than go tell a bunch of farmers are doing the th- things wrong. And so it's, it's been a really powerful uh, expose on, on human psyche as much as anything else is we change when we see success. And so like journey of intrinsic health, watching somebody else heal in front of you, a farmer who watches a, a neighboring field heal, uh, pays attention. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to create this, this snowball effect where regeneration becomes the universal uh, practice in our food systems globally over the next 10 years when you guys start tuning that in there. So farmersfootprint.us, if you're in Australia, uh, farmersfootprint.org.au, uh, we launched uh, a standalone nonprofit there. We're reaching the, the, the public there. We're launching in the UK, South Africa, New Zealand this year. So lots of ways for you to get engaged in Farmers Footprint and the mission of a regenerative food system. Uh, but most of all, I would love to see all of you growing that that pot in the in the window or a backyard garden this spring as you get engaged. And I would at least love to see how that uh, changes your lives. So I'll get you going. Well, wow. thank, thank you for yeah. your generosity with all this information that not only you've shared today, but that you're offering to the world. And like you said, like there's powers and numbers. So it, this may seem like a daunting, big, you know, endeavor, if you will. But if everyone just does one small thing and joins together, you know, we have the power to to change the health of the planet, really. That's it. And and I'm kind of amazed at how many things you have going on. I mean, you're one person and granted, I'm sure you have a team working with you, but mm -hmm. the fact that you're doing this and you're doing that, you have the product line and the, you know, farmer's footprint and you're one-on-one, not your one-on-one, your group coaching. I mean, Mm -hmm. and you're doing these kinds of things. I mean, you are really sharing your message with the world. You should be very proud of yourself. Uh, I'm not terribly proud of myself, but I am. I do feel very blessed to be around the teams that I'm around. So lots of different teams working on lots of different products. I've only mentioned about a third of what we're actually doing because if I told you the whole thing, you wouldn't believe me. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, no, it's very exciting. And what I've found is that you know it's just it, it's just like human cells. You connect a bunch of cells together, they work more intelligently, faster, and more productively than they ever could alone. And so if you feel frustrated about your own productivity, it's probably because you're lacking connection. And it's probably because the world has told you, you can't be connected to other people. Uh, doctors are definitely discouraged from being connected to one another because they would start to think differently if they were. So so connecting to people around you is really you know the sauce of life. And you know, having been a hospice doctor, admitting 80 patients a week to, to a service that would watch them die, 
Um, when you're seeing that much death, I can tell you that nobody ever sat around talking about their bank account. Nobody ever at the end of life talks about, you know, the, the positions they held at their companies or their resume. They all talk about the people and the relationships that shaped their lives and, and that they can only see their life through the context of human connection at the end of life. And so make sure you tell a rich story on your deathbed by getting more connected to your community, getting more connected to the people around you. It is so rewarding to work with others. And so start to become creative in those few minutes between dream and wake and start with that creativity, imagining who you could pull into your environment to play in that sandbox and create something completely new. And, and you'll have a much better life in the next few years. Beautifully said. So we have taken up so much of your time, I know, Dr. Zach. But one question we like to ask all of our guests at the end of each conversation is, what does the art of living well mean to you? It's a good question. I love the word art there. Uh, so if you go to my website, Zach Bush, or see any of my podcasts or whatever, I talk a lot about curiosity. And I, I believe that if there's any evidence that we have something of the divine creativity within ourselves, it's that, that symptom of curiosity. It's a strange thing that a species would wake up one morning and, and wonder what it could build and go build something like the New York skyline. That's pretty remarkable. It, it keeps us different from any other animal species out there in a lot of ways. We create things that it could have never been imagined in the nature we were born into. So human nature seems to be striving towards something beyond the nature we were born into. And I think it's all nature. It's not, I think AI is a piece of nature, you know? So it's like, it's just that it, we're isolating ourselves from the original nature and therefore dying. But what we create could become part of that matrix if we believe in reconnection. and. And so ultimately the art of living is being in that space that I began with, the non-negotiable. Are you willing to be quiet long enough for a new thought to come? Are you willing to be quiet enough, long enough to be curious about something? The world is so quick to fill your space right now with new content, new postings, new emails, new everything that I, my guess is you haven't had more than a millisecond of time that was actually yours. It has been owned thoroughly by an information stream that is not from you. And for that, I don't know that you or I remember who we were and who we're here to be and what our purpose is in being here. And for that, we feel depressed and lost and unseen and unheard and unappreciated. And so we develop all this, not only insecurity, but bitterness about being who we are and bitterness towards the world. And that keeps us increasingly isolated and therefore increasingly depressed and therefore increasingly unproductive. And, and that lack of productivity is ultimately the, the end stage of the loss of curiosity. And so the art of living is staying curious long enough to create the new world you want to live in. That was beautiful. We love this question, of course, but that just encapsulated everything that you said so well. And I just personally can resonate with a lot, with a lot of that. And I know our listeners will too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to be with all of you. I appreciate the connectivity that the, this podcast allows. I'm glad I'm connected to every one of you that have never heard of me. I'm glad to know each of you vicariously through Stephanie and Marnie here. And I'm just grateful that you guys have created community in the way that you have and that you've welcomed me into that community is a great privilege. So thank you for your time and attention to this stuff. It's what keeps me ticking. And uh, it's because I want to be connected to all of you for a great new human experiment that we might call the human species and its new iteration and its new rebirth here as we come out of our extinction event. Thank you so much, Zach. Yeah. Grateful. Have a great day. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook, where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well. Mm-hmm.